As we are coming to our servant song in Isaiah 54, I was uh, reading about Rembrandt's The Night Watch. What's interesting is this is one of Rembrandt's most well-known works. It's one of his most famous works, but it's been assaulted at least three times. You're like, how can a painting be assaulted? Well, uh, it's been assaulted at least three times in the last 120 years. And according to Time Magazine, the first incident took place in the early 1900s when an unemployed Navy cook attempted to slash it with a knife for what seems to be no apparent reason. The attack actually did no damage, which the writer of the article said might have uh, indicated why he was an out-of-work Navy cook if he didn't know how to use a knife to slash a painting. And then in 1975, a Dutch teacher did happen to cut several zigzags into the canvas, allegedly as a revenge for being told he'd arrived a few minutes too late to enter the museum the night before. Most recently, in 1990, a German man with a mental illness and a track record for targeting artworks doused the painting with acid. Museum staff was able to get to it soon enough to stop the corrosion before it ate more than the level of varnish over the paint. But a painting like this, a great piece of work, it's been attacked this many times and has had damage done to it. What was done? Was it thrown away? No, not at all. Each time, experts worked with utmost care and precision. They made every effort to restore it to its original beauty and glory. And then last summer, the museum announced that the work would undergo a total restoration, something unheard of, something never been uh, undergone on this level of restoration. It's taken nearly a year And they still haven't completed the research of the painting. Researching it meaning they have this giant camera that scans it. And they look at all the different aspects of the way that Rembrandt's brush strokes and how the paint adhered to the the canvas and all these different things, looking at each individual aspect of this painting. They haven't even completed that process nearly a year later. And they've undergone this research process so they can restore it properly. This morning, in our passage, we hear of a restoration of greater proportions, greater care and greater beauty and glory that comes from this restoration. We come to the restoration of God's covenant, of the city of God and of God's people all done with the greatest care and at the highest price. Let's read Isaiah 54, verses 9 through 14. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah would no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. 
O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, far for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this promise that you have given us through the prophet Isaiah and fulfilled in and through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word today, Lord, you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts full of hope, hope in what is to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So after a short break for Holy Week, we come back to our Servant Song series, as I said, and it's not completely agreed among scholars that the following chapters are to be included in the Servant Songs of Isaiah. But I think as we work through chapters 54 through 56, you'll see how if they aren't the songs themselves, we should think of them as part of the re-release of the album, right? When artists re-release a famous album, they'll often add in extra songs that they were writing either at that time or that go along with the same theme of the album. And so this, these chapters of 54 through 56 even if they aren't explicitly connected to the Servant Songs of Isaiah, they are without a doubt a part of the re-release album. They are part of what God wants to teach us through His servant. So what's next? The servant has done what he was sent to do. As we saw in chapter 53, we saw that the servant had done what he had been sent to do by the Father. He died for his people, but now is alive and making intercession for his people, his people who were once transgressors. And last Sunday on Easter, we saw the remedy for fear is the resurrection. But what's next? What's next for God's people? What's next for those who follow this servant? Last week we said that there was no more fear of death, but now what? Okay, there's no more fear of death because of the resurrection. Now what? And the answer of Scripture here in Isaiah and throughout over and over again, now what? Now life. Life restored. Life renewed. Life as it was meant to be. We see in our text today that resurrected Jesus is the servant of restoration. The restoration that brings about the restored covenant, the restored city, and the restored people. First, the restored covenant that Jesus brings about in verses 9 through 10. God 
has promised that he will never pour out his wrath on the earth again. That's his reference to as in the days of Noah. Like, this is like the days of Noah to me, God says. And in that reference, he is referencing the story of Noah where God poured out his wrath on the earth because of the evil that, that he saw on the earth through flooding the earth. And likewise, here he promises never again to be angry or rebuke his people again. In the story of Noah, we see the earth is destroyed and God, after the waters recede, gives a promise, a covenant to Noah and his family, saying that he will never destroy the earth again. His anger will never destroy the earth again. And here he uses that same understanding of the people of God to remind them that his anger, his rebuke will never come to his people again. Remember, this is the promise after his people of Isaiah telling what's going to happen after his people have come back from exile, been released from the exile of God's anger and rebuke. This is not a promise that God's people will never suffer affliction or his fatherly discipline. But it is a promise that something so tragic as the exile, which would have seemed, if we were there, if we were part of God's people, the exile would have seemed as if God had forgotten his people and cast aside his promises forever. That literally everything that God had promised looked like it had been thrown away, destroyed, wiped from the face of the earth, like in the days of Noah. And yet God says, that will never happen again. The experience of God's people, the church, will never be like that experience of the exile. And so God begins this, re, this restoration, this recreation by reminding his people of the days of Noah and that what they've experienced will never be like that again. And he goes on from, that, from this idea that this will never happen again, that his anger will never be like this again, that his rebuke will never be like this again, to move and to show us that he means this in the sense by reminding us that his steadfast love will not depart from you, that his covenant of peace will not be removed, that he has compassion on you. And he says, you know how, how Saul this is, that while the mountains may seem immovable... I don't know if you remember my story from last week, but climbing uh, Horn Peak out in Colorado, the Rocky Mountains, you look at those mountains and you stand there and you look up and you think, this is the most solid thing in the world. This is the most imposing thing I have ever encountered. And God is saying that while the mountains may seem immovable, it's more likely 
is more likely that those great mountains will be moved than God's steadfast love removed from his people. That God's steadfast love cannot be moved. It cannot be shaken. His covenant of peace is unbreakable. This is Isaiah's equivalent to God's grace and mercy. This covenant of peace, of grace and mercy is secure because of the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. The servant who is pierced for our transgressions, as chapter 53 reminded us, who is crushed for our iniquities, who upon him the chastisement that brought us peace was laid. By his wounds we are healed. He was stricken for our transgressions, the offering for our guilt. Yet death could not hold him. And so the suffering servant is no longer suffering, but is the risen Lord who has secured these very promises for us. The very promises that God reminds us cannot be shaken, cannot be moved. They are stronger than the most imposing mountain. His steadfast love, his covenant of peace, his compassion. Like the deluge of the waters brought destruction in the days of Noah, God says, the deluge of my love. In my deluge, you will forget your heartache and you will be restored. In the deluge of my love, all the sad things come untrue. And just as God hung his war bow, the rainbow, right? In the Hebrew, the term that's translated rainbow in Genesis is war bow. God takes his war bow and instead of pointing it at the earth in destruction, hangs it in the sky, pointing at himself. And he gives us his war bow as a sign of his covenant of peace. A covenant sign. So the servant of the Lord Jesus hung on the cross became the covenant of peace for us. Just as God hung that war bow in the sky as a sign for Noah and for us, the servant Lord Jesus hung on the cross and became the covenant of peace for us. And his resurrection is the sign that the covenant of peace is secure and shall not be removed. The grace of God is the covenant of peace. A permanent arrangement bringing us a wholeness that we do not deserve. And so we can enjoy God's peace as God's restored people without fearing that he'll retract it. Right? We didn't cause his grace to begin, so we can't reverse it now. 
this grace that we receive in the covenant of peace is ours forevermore in Christ. Cannot be moved. Cannot be shaken. That is the promise of the restored covenant. That we, as God's people, (laughs) Israel before us and us in Grafton, have done everything that we possibly could do to remove the covenant from us. But because grace didn't begin with us, there's nothing we can do to reverse it now. The covenant has been restored by Jesus. And it's for all those who trust in Him. This is the promise of the restored covenant. But there's also the promise of the restored city Verses 11 through 12. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in anonymity and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. God is speaking of Jerusalem, God's people. He's saying, You've been afflicted, miserable. There's a storm raging. You're not comforted. Mercy feels foreign to you. This is the condition. That God's people found themselves in. And God's promise of never again being angry. His reassurance of His unmovable and never-ending love, peace, and compassion is the promise for those who find themselves in this situation. Maybe you feel like that this day. Maybe you feel storm-tossed. Maybe comfort is not something that you are aware of at this moment. Maybe mercy feels foreign to you. The promise of God that He lays out here is for those who find themselves in situations just like this. In situations just like we find ourselves in today. And God is restoring the fortunes of his people. Even when it may not feel like those fortunes are being restored, when it may not feel like the storm has ceased, we may not feel that comfort like we'd want to. When mercy feels foreign. God's promise is that He is restoring us. And He says, behold. Right? It's interesting in our English version, it's kind of almost like a 
footnote because it's in the middle of, of a sentence. It's not even capitalized. There's no exclamation point. But in the Hebrew, this would be like, behold, hello, wake up. You know, in the movie Back to the Future, hello, McFly, hello. That's kind of what God is doing here. Behold, wake up. McFly, hello. God wants us to look, see him. He said, here is what I am going to do. Here is what I am doing. It's called restoration. We see here that God will replace the church's poverty, his people's poverty with wealth, her turbulence with security, and her despair with comfort. It is all his doing because his resources are endless. Look at the endless resources that he says that he will use to restore his city, to restore the dwelling place of his people. The Lord is the builder who will restore the city. He will restore it to its beauty and glory greater than before. And Timony is used to set the stones, he says. But what's interesting is it's illustrious gray metalloid, and it's often used for cosmetics. So God is using uh, not that as like, that's going to be the mortar for the stones because it's that one to hold them together. But he's using it to kind of give us an even greater picture of, of how brilliant these stones are going to be that he's going to use sapphires and agate and all of these fine jewels, and he's going to use what is used to beautify the face, to even add more beauty to these stones that he is using to build. Verse 12 carries this beautiful description started in verse 11 more, gives us a picture of this sparkling beauty of what this restored city will be. And we see this same description with more detail in Revelation 21 that we read this morning. A city of such lavish investment as to boggle the mind. Right, we see in Revelation described with, with, these, with sapphires and agate and all kinds of other precious jewels and gold and clear, the clearest glass that you could ever imagine. All these depictions of this city that just is lavish. Lavish to look upon. Who has built this city? Who has the imagination to build something like this? Who had the wealth? (laughs) God. God does. That's who. And this city is where His people will live forever and ever and ever. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, you hear this, these depictions of the city, and you're like, okay, that yeah, sounds beautiful, but, you know, I can't really wrap my mind around it. I don't know if you can wrap your mind around it or not. 
But I tried to wrap my mind around it a little bit, and I got into some little kind of geeky theological uh, mathematics, which kind of sounds weird. But I went to Revelation, where we read from this morning, and as I'm reading through Revelation and I'm seeing the depictions and the, and it, it, and the angel giving John the different sizes and, thing, and, and uh, scale of things, I, I started to say, what exactly does this city begin to look like? Okay, I see the sapphires, and I see the jewels, and I see the diamonds and the gold and all the, the beauty of it, but what does this mean in terms of like how this is actually going to play out? And what's interesting is if you look at the way in which the angel describes the dimensions of the city, if you take that into modern-day uh, usage of square miles. The city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down, that is described here and more fully in Revelation that God's people will live in and enjoy forever and evermore is 1.9 million square miles just in its base. Because what we have in the description is a cube. And so just the just the square miles of the area of this city equals 1. million square miles. And if you think about 1. million square miles, I had no idea how to really categorize that. And so I did some more geeky theological research and I went and did some ge geography. And what I found is that 1.9 million square miles is equal to the size of the entire mountain west of the United States, from Colorado all the way to the west coast, plus Texas, plus Alaska. Can you even comprehend or fathom a city <laughs> the size of that amount of land? That's just the surface area. It doesn't take into account the 1.9 million square miles on each level if you divided this cube <laughs> into levels. Can you comprehend that? Can you envision that? I think sometimes we think, you know, well, what's, gonna, what's heaven going to be like? What am I going to have to, what, what's going to be there to do? What am I? I'll tell you what, I don't think I could see it, spend all of eternity exploring a city that size. <laughs> the amount of beauty, the amount of space. The amount of adventure the amount of work to be done in the service of the king. And that's just the city. What about the rest of the renewed earth to explore? It's not just the restored covenant and the restored city. It's also restored people. The external beauty 
of this city is a reflection of the internal beauty of those who dwell there. Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. All those who are of this city, of the people, shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. No more tears. No more fighting. No more fear. There's just peace. And Jesus actually refers to this passage in John 6.45 where Jesus says, it's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So Jesus was applying this passage to himself. That all those who come to him and learn from him are taught by him, are children of this city. Calvin, commenting on this passage, says, When the Lord was, has formed and polished us by his Spirit and has added to the external preaching of the word the internal efficacy of the Spirit, we become living in precious stones for the building of the temple of God. This external beauty is reflected by the internal beauty of all those who dwell in this city. These redeemed people are established, God says, in righteousness. You'll be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near to you. God's people are established in righteousness. God's own righteousness, shown in the salvation of his people and given to his people, because this is their foundation. They are far from oppression, fear, and terror. They can't touch you, God says. And while oppression, fear, and terror should have no hold on us, let's face it. We still experience these things. And yet the promise is still true. While we may still experience them in this life, the promise of the restored city, of the restored creation, is the promise of resurrection. So, no matter what we experience in this life, the righteousness of God is our sure foundation. And we look for the city whose builder is God. We look with the eyes of faith like Abraham, which is the writers of the Hebrew, Hebrews remind us in chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is God. Where oppression, fear, and terror are no more where chilling winds nor poisonous breath can touch us, where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. 
Now what do we do with this? Do we hold on for dear life, waiting for the city of God, the new Jerusalem to come out of heaven? Yes and no. Yes, we hold on for dear life to Jesus. We fix our eyes on him, the covenant of peace, waiting by faith for the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Like Abraham, we wait with expectant hope. And yet we don't wait idly by. We wait with expectant hope, preparing all of creation for the return of the king. Using what we've been given by God to do his will on earth as it is in heaven, we are preparing ourselves and all of creation shining up the sapphires and agate, the emeralds and all the jewels that are ready for the builder to come and rebuild what only he can, all of creation. In a recent interview in the Belfast Telegraph, John Lennox, the famous professor of mathematics at Oxford University and Christian apologist, when asked about the problems of suffering and evil, he points to his faith in the resurrection. He says, faith simply means trust. But what do we have faith in? This is not some sort of Santa Claus belief. Faith in Christ and God is evidence-based trust, the kind of thing involved in any good human relationship. Everyone believes in certain things, and sensible people believe them on the basis of evidence. My hope for the future depends on Jesus' resurrection, for which I believe. There is historical evidence. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning, or as Paul says, the first fruits of the greatest restoration project ever imagined, ever undertaken. And in Christ, we have the promise that it is ours. The keys have been given to us in Christ Jesus. And God says, take these keys. Enter. Enter into the city. Enter into the new creation. Enter as new people. Restored people under the restored covenant in Jesus Christ. And enjoy forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that the resurrection is indeed the beginning or the first fruits of you restoring all things. Lord, you have promised that you are making all things new. And in your resurrection, Lord, we have proof that project has begun. And Lord, we look with eyes of faith, with expectant hope as Abraham did, looking for the city with foundations, whose designer and builder is you. Lord, that is our future hope. Lord, may that future hope 
live and dwell in us now and give us strength for the work ahead, for the journey ahead as we travel toward that great city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.